Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and, and look at your word and have, see what you would have us to see from this. We ask you to bless this time and guide and lead as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 85. We'll read the whole psalm to start with. Verse 1. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you have been favorable unto your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have uncovered, you have covered all their sins, Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your your anger to all generations. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. So this is uh, quite a psalm. It's talking about the redemption of the people. And again, this is a... A psalm for the sons of Korah. So all these ones seem to have this idea of the future. And we look at this and it says, Lord, you have been favorable unto your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. The whole idea of Jacob being brought into captivity, this is Jacob going into, his, in, into Egypt and does anybody remember how many people went to Egypt when they went into e went back to Egypt, down to Egypt? Jacob numbered seventy people at that time. Seventy people went into Egypt and ended up in captivity. They left. Does anybody remember approximately how many people left Egypt? Probably we figure they're about three and a half million. Oh, three and a half million. Approximately, because we know that there was almost seven hundred thousand fighting men of age and if they were fighting men of age they were probably married so you're going to double that number to about one and a half million and then children on top of that and for many of their families back then having you know to get to three and a half we're looking at only like two kids per family but uh you know they probably had many more uh because the family size back then was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I mean, we read about some guys who have sixty kids. Sixty and seventy. Yeah, sixty and seventy kids. You know, but that wasn't the. Those weren't the average. Those weren't the average size families. Most of them kind of stopped at six and seven kids. But uh, well, a lot of times when they had that many kids, there were also multiple wives involved in it. So, but. He says, you've been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. They, Jacob and, and the children of Israel went into Egypt, were made captives. And this is something that is hard. You know, they went down there while Joseph was in char, second in charge. And if you remember the story, it goes in there, in the first part of Exodus, it says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And you kind of figure out, try to figure out how, how can that happen. But if you know Egyptian history, it wasn't very hard. Uh, a new dynasty would take over, and the first thing the new dynasty would do is basically erase the names of these people off of every uh, statue and every wall that they could find. And there's still places where they look, and there's, they've chiseled out the name out, right out of the rock. There's this blank spot that they chiseled, chiseled out the name of somebody. And so they've been trying to figure out who these people are at times. And Joseph would have been one of these people. The Pharaoh that he was under got deposed and took that Pharaoh's name out and every other leader that was part of that, that kingdom. And it wouldn't take long once your name has been erased from history to be forgotten. I mean, we haven't even taken the names of a lot of people out of history. And um, there's a lot of people in America that don't know 
in some of the founding fathers of our of our country. And we know Washington and Jefferson and Madison, but if you ask somebody who Governor Morris is, you know, they're not going to have a clue who you're talking about. You ask some people, do you even know who Patrick Henry is? You know, and he used to be very, very famous, and a lot of the young kids don't know who Patrick Henry is. You know, there's all these names out there that people don't know because they're not taught in school and have had the equivalency of having their name scratched off all the documents because they just don't present the documents to them. And so we have this situation where they went into captivity and were forgotten in spite of all that happened. It says, you have forgiven the iniquities of your people. You have covered all their sins. This one can stretch even further, not just toward Israel, but to us. Jesus' death allows all of our sin, our, our sin to be covered and the iniquity to be, to be forgiven. You know, think, and we think about this. God covers our sin with the blood of Christ. He was, and we've talked about this, the fancy word, he was the propitiation for sin. Okay, and we've talked about that the word propitiation means to satisfy the anger of somebody. God was angry with people. Why was he angry with people? Because of our sin. And Jesus died so that God's anger would be satisfied and his blood covers the sin. If you remember when we were talking about the mercy seat on the, on the Wednesday class, mercy seat literally in the Hebrew is the seat of propitiation. So this is when we were talking in the Revelation class and we were talking about he that overcomes is not somebody who sits there and battles and wins the battle. It is anybody who has come to Christ because Christ is the overcomer, and he makes us overcomers. He makes us victors. And you think about this. Our sin is covered. He makes us overcomers. He fills us with his righteousness, brings us into the family of God, and says, you are victorious. And we didn't do a thing to be victorious. How did we become victorious? We accepted him. Pretty simple way to become victorious, isn't it? We get to march march in the in the army of God when he comes back with the saints at the end, end days to take Jerusalem. He shows up and we ride behind him. And all he does is speak a word. He ends a battle. He steps on Mount Olivet and, and starts ruling from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we get to come and be part of the victorious army and we don't have to do anything. Except maybe learn to ride a horse. Which I think he's going to just make happen. He makes us victorious. He, we are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. He covers our sin. And this is something we really have to understand. Sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. It is gone. It is history. God doesn't remember it anymore because Jesus paid for it. Doesn't mean there's not consequence for sin. Because that's part of reaping and sowing. But there is, the sin itself is gone. And this should give us great hope. Satan so often wants to come and knock on our door and say, well, you're a terrible, lousy person. You know, look at all the things you do wrong. Satan wants to condemn us. Condemnation makes us stop going forward. Conviction drives us to God in forgiveness. Uh, but condemnation will stop us from moving forward. And this is why in Romans 8 it says, there is now therefore no condemnation because Jesus has paid for the debt. And this is important for us to understand. Satan wants us stopped. You know, Satan first doesn't want us to even become a Christian. That's his ultimate goal, is to make sure that we don't come to Christ in the first place. Once we've come to Christ, his goal is simply to try to stop us from moving forward with God. He's already lost us. He knows he's lost us when we come to Christ. But his goal at that point is to try to bring us under condemnation so we will stop going forward with God and quit serving him. And the sad thing is, quite often, he's successful in that condemnation and stopping us from going forward. And we're sitting there that God says, I don't condemn. I've forgiven you. Just walk in that forgiveness. You know, and we think, you know, we're talking about the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph's brothers, when they found out who he was, feared for their lives. Yeah. No. Well, I would too if I could. Probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it makes sense that they. But you know what was really sad is, even 
though Joseph said, you did this for the wrong reasons, God used it for good so that I could save you. And he loved his brothers. When their father died, they figured that Joseph would change his mind. And you remember the story, they went to Joseph and said, you know, our father said to tell you to remind you that, you know, he asked for our forgiveness. And it broke Joseph's heart that his brothers never did understand what forgiveness was all about. Mm. And you know, this should be our, the way we think at times. You know, it is true for those of us who teach and we teach somebody and we teach somebody and we watch them make the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's, you know, it's like, just learn, please, you know, come you know, listen to God. And we, and sometimes we do it to ourselves, you know, like, you know, we get mad at ourselves because we keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And it just seems like we can't learn. And I can just picture God in heaven saying, just let me take it away from you. Just let me reach down and help you be victorious. We, we were doing the class uh, um, for new believers and was talking about how God's word changes us. And this is the thing I keep sharing with us. We get into God's word, we listen to teaching, we start just letting his word get in dwelling us, changing who we are and what we are, or were, <laughs> into what we are to be with God. And it's so, it is so simple when we let God do the work and we just meditate on his word. And this is one of the reasons I share with people, the best time to do your Bible reading and your Bible study is in the morning. And how many times do you read in the morning and then throughout the day, you find out that what you read that morning is just what you need to get the answers for that day. Now, if you want to study at night, and there's nothing really wrong with studying at night, but how many times have you, if you have ever done the study at night and you read the verses and say, wow, I wish I, needed I wish I knew that this morning when I was going through whatever it was you were going through. So recommend that you do your Bible reading, do your prayer time, do your start your meditation on the on the morning, and let those words help you throughout the day. But God is out there, and He's just giving us what we need. And He'll, you know, and it's really amazing to me when you when you reading a schedule, you're you're just reading the schedule of what you know. It's not even not even flipping through the Bible and everything, and yet the schedule matches what you need because of how real God and alive God's Word is. And he's saying that he's forgiven us. He wants us to come to him. We have a clean heart. Our sins are covered. Verse 3 says, You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Now, these are not words that we oftentimes think about as Christians about God. But you realize that he is a God that has anger at being disobeyed. Mm. He has wrath that needs to be satisfied. Now, he dumped his anger and his wrath upon his son when he took our sins upon him. And it says in Hebrews that it pleased the father to punish the son. And that's kind of a harsh thought when we think about it. That he took the pleasure of disciplining the son who volunteered to take our sin upon him because his wrath had to go someplace. And this is something that we learn over time. If you're angry with somebody, that anger has to be dealt with. It cannot be pushed down and ignored. Because if you push it down and ignore it, it eventually comes out. We need to be able to give it to God, deal with it, apologize to the individual if we need to apologize, or at least let them know that we've forgiven them if, if need be. Forgiveness is also important. You cannot just push down your anger at somebody without forgiveness. You must forgive that individual. You may, not, may or may not have to tell them that they're forgiven. And most of the time, we as humans, we, want, we, don't, we don't want to forgive somebody until what? They ask for forgiveness, correct? God is wanting us just to learn to forgive them, whether they've asked or not. God forgave us when we were not even thinking about him. He put all the, the, the sin on Jesus and allowed forgiveness. When we learn to be forgiving of others, we don't hold it against them. And you know, I've said this over and over, how many times have you decided you're gonna forgive somebody and maybe we even go, you know, I forgive you for hurting me and they go, what are you talking about? 
They never even, they never remembered the incidents that bothered you for years or decades. And you've been angry for them and they may even look at you, you were angry at me? <laughs> what, did, what did I do? What, you know, why were you angry? And they're going, they don't even remember the incident at all. Or they don't remember it the same way you did. Or it didn't mean, you know, they go, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. Have you ever had somebody get mad at you for something that you did or said? And you kind of go, how did you get that? I, didn't, yeah. I don't remember saying that. I don't remember having an attitude toward you, but it was picked up. We have a great ability to give a reason for things to be done. And I've heard people say that. Well, you know why they did this. And they start giving you this long reason about why somebody did something. Or, and I go, well, how do you know that? Well, I just know. I go, OK, you know the motive and the thoughts of their heart by whatever reason. And you know the sad thing is we're so often wrong when we assign motive and, and, and to somebody's actions. Almost always wrong. And even if we're right, it still didn't work, do, do us any good to assign a motive to it. We need to learn to just take what this happened and forgive it. And that's sometimes hard. And that's one of the reasons I've left that big sign on the PowerPoint about the forgiveness that I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to dwell upon it. I'm not going to speak about it. Because forgiveness starts with us changing our hard attitude toward that person. The thing you miss because you come in at the last three minutes before service starts. <laughs> the one that was in the bulletin six weeks ago. So we'll get you a copy of the, the printed copy of it. One, two weeks ago. So but the idea of forgiveness, quit dwelling on what was done wrong or your perceived action of what was done wrong. Because the first step of forgiveness is to forget it. And technically, I agree, we cannot forget what's in our brain. But if you quit rehearsing it and quit thinking about it, pretty soon, it is the equivalent of having been forgotten. Is it still in your brain? Can it be dredged up? Yes. But if you quit thinking about it, you'll quit getting, you'll quit bringing in members. And every time you think about it, you get angry at the person, even if you, quote unquote, have forgiven them. And then we quit telling others. Well, if we quit telling our, reminding ourselves, we're going to very quickly for, quit telling others. But how many times have you had the story, well, you know what so-and-so did to me 25 years ago? <laughs> you know, we're trying to make others think bad of this person that they may, not, may or may not even know, but we're trying to destroy their reputation to everybody who doesn't even know them in most cases. And we're supposed to be forgetting it in our first place. You know? And we're not to try to hurt them, okay? Again, the idea of keep, keep speaking. We need to be able to draw out and speak good things about people. Confess the good things. Uh, the old adage, if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all, is probably a very good habit to get into when you're trying to live under forgiveness. And find something good. I mean, if you look hard enough, everybody's got something good you can say about them. Uh, it may just be that they wear nice clothes or, or wear their hair nice or whatever it might be. You know, find something that you can be positive about and be able to edify. We're told to edify one another, build one another up. And that's not just invent things you know, to, to, make, you know, to edify, but we definitely want to be able to say, you know, I really like the faithfulness that you have in coming to church each week. Or you are so faithful, you've always got good things to say in the, in the Bible class because you have these insights from God, or whatever it is, you are just so faithful, you're always there. Whatever it might be is important. We build people up. And the more you build people up, the easier it is to find good things to say about them and other people, because you're making a habit of edification. And this is so important for us as we look at this. And God's turned away his anger, his wrath. And that's something we don't want on us, because look what it did to the sun. Look what it did to the days of Noah, when God finally got fed up with the world and its sinful lifestyle. The description of the days of Noah was that every imagination of their heart was evil. It's kind of scary, because it seems like that's the way for a lot of those people in our, in our world today, that every imagination of their heart is evil. And they're looking to do evil. They're looking to find 
ways to justify their evil to be to be considered good. They're calling good evil and evil evil good. Calling good, yeah. <laughs> Make sure I said that right. Uh, and God destroyed the whole world except for Noah, his three sons and their wives, eight people. Eight people. And if you think about it, and I've actually laid it out, there were probably millions, if not billions, of people in Noah's day to be executed because of their sinfulness. So reminiscent of today's world and where we're at. Millions and billions of people all trying to do things their own way, and God will execute judgment taking the church out of this world and letting them say, okay, now we're going to show you what life is like without God. You wanted, wanted to be without him, here it is. And letting the tribulation period start. Very cru cruel, but yet what they deserve. Verse 4 says, Turn us, O God, for our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. His prayer, turn us. God, you turn us away from our sinful desires. We're, we as Christians should be, that should be our prayer. God, turn us. How is he, what tool is he going to use primarily for turning us? His word. He's going to get us in the word and he's going to say, here, this is something you're not supposed to do. This is something you shouldn't be doing. This is something you shouldn't be doing. And as I said this morning, he has an individualized plan for each one of us on how he's going to correct us and teach us. He doesn't have a one-size-fits-all, off-the-rack set of rules and, and regulations. He's going to teach each one of us where we're at, at the time that we're at, and what we need for the upcoming events in our life. Okay? And this is why it can't be a one-size-fits-all. We're, most of us are looking for that, though, aren't we? We're looking for some, okay, God, give me the, give me the 25 steps I need to do to be a good Christian. You know, just put it, in, put it in order for me. And God's saying, sorry, we don't work this way. We don't work this way. There's not a, there's not a step one, two, step three, four, five, six. Be easy if it was. Wouldn't it be? But he tells us, he tells us in five places that the just shall live by faith. It would be so easy if it was just, here's your 25 steps. Do it, start at one and get to 25 and you're going to be perfect. It's not that easy, unfortunately. I have agreed. There's been times when I go, God, why can't you just be right here on my shoulder, you know, yelling in my ear, you know, do this, do that, do this, do that. But his answer is, the just shall live by faith. How do we build faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we get into his word, the more faith we get, the more faith we get, the easier it is to walk in righteousness and, and integrity. But it all starts with getting into his word and actually listening. Being, reading and studying, meditating on his word, getting into as much Bible studies as we can, listening to studies on the radio, whatever it is that it takes to get those studies, we fill our minds. That, that is the great faith on that. And I've always loved their answer. Yeah, I do too. You know, guys are, well, you know, who's going to save you from my hand? Is your God able to? I love their answer. Our God is able, but whether he does or doesn't, we will serve the Lord. That is a great faith, and do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of faith that whether he delivers us or not, we are serving him? I, I talk a lot about Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it, it was full of those kind of stories. We're going to honor God whether he delivers us or not. We're going to follow him. Stephen did the same thing. You know, he's defending God with that same attitude. The disciples, every time they came up and said, we're going to follow God, we're going to speak his word. And if you kill us, you kill us. If, you, if we don't, we're going, to keep, we're going to keep speaking his name. You know, and again, I've said it over and over. We in America are really spoiled because we don't have any real pain in, in serving God. Yeah, we may get teased, somebody might make fun of us, but what kind of pain is that in reality? If you were, if you were in the Middle East and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're probably going to be dead in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Okay? This is a reality in much of the world that you become a Christian 
and you're putting your very life in your hands because of the hatred for Christianity that exists in a lot of the world. And we in America think we're being persecuted when we get teased for our Christianity. Or somebody makes fun of our Christian, Christianity and we're, and we're kind of saying, oh, well, I'm being persecuted. I had one guy tell me he, was being, he, he lost his job because he was being persecuted. I go, what did you do? He goes, I was sharing the gospel. I go, is that what you were being paid to do? <laughs> you know, that had nothing to do with persecution. It was he didn't do his job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, did, you got fired because you weren't doing your job. Now, if you were talking to him and got fired on your, on your break or on your lunch, now you're being persecuted. But if you were talking to him when you were supposed to be doing other things, it wasn't persecution. Persecution is a serious thing. And I, and I don't want to be laughing about it because, you know, what we do go through in the States, you know, for us is not that, you know, yeah. not that it's just as hard in some cases because we're not used to it. But get ready because it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. This country is getting worse and worse toward Christians, and there's going to be a time when we're going to pay with our jobs just for being a Christian. There are going to be times when we may, even in the near future, be paying with our life, or at the very least, our freedom, and being sent to jail for being Christians. Okay, It's not too far down the road, because Satan hates Christianity, he hates the proclamation of the gospel, and he is behind all of this stuff. You know, people people start getting into conspiracy theory and every you know, theories and, and mentality, and I'm not saying that the people behind it are all getting together and colluding on this, but there is an enemy behind the scenes who is orchestrating all of this activity into the same direction, and that's Satan and his demonic forces. So there is a conspiracy. It's just not. It's a lot higher than most people want to look. It's not the people that are colluding and making these conspiracies. It's much higher up in, in the battle. And that doesn't mean that they're listening directly to Satan, but they are following his direction and his, his plans. And things are going to continue to get worse in this country. It's, it's, you know, I'm, as you know, into the computers and everything, and I, I look at these articles and I read all the comments that people make in it behind their pseudonyms and everything where people don't know who they are. And there is a lot of hatred toward Christianity out there in this world. And it's scary when you see, see them, and it's even scarier when you see it with people who are right out of, in your face about it, and it's going to keep getting worse. But that is just a proof that we're at the end times because it's going to be getting worse. And if, we're, if God is 100 years away, it's really scary at how bad it's going to get. I don't know that we're that far away, but we think about how evil things can get, and it's going to keep getting worse. And people are going to start coming against God and lifting up everything but God. And we're seeing it strong out there. And it's our salvation. God is going to turn us. He's going to turn other people. And this is the wonderful thing. When you witness and you see somebody's heart turn to God and just say, I want to follow him, it's a great experience. And if you talk to enough people, eventually you'll see some people that will turn to God. And our job really is just to keep planting seeds and plant seeds and plant seeds, but it is wonderful when you get the blessing of actually sitting down, praying with somebody and watching their lights turn on in their eyes and the smile come across their face and the lightness that just all of a sudden overwhelms them and they turn to God. And then it says, his anger ceases. Then verse five says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? <laughs> you know, this, is, this is a people that don't really see the love and mercy of God all that much. But you think about this. When the Jews were wandering out of the, in the Exodus, as soon as they leave Egypt and Pharaoh starts chasing them, the very first thing they do is complain, you know, uh, what did you bring us out for you know, out here? Was, there wasn't enough graves in Egypt, so they wanted us to kill, them, kill us in the desert and just leave us here. They go through the water. They're singing praises to God for delivering them from Egypt. The Egyptians are floating in the, floating in the Red Sea. And 24 hours later, they're griping and complaining because they're thirsty. <laughs> then a couple weeks later, they're griping and complaining because they're thirsty again. They, they, they've run out of water. Then they're griping and complaining that they don't have food. 
Then Moses goes up on Sinai to get the law, and he's only gone 40 days, and they go, well, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy that, that delivered us out of Egypt. Aaron, make us a, make us a god. You know, and I've always loved, you know, we talked about this. I love Aaron's excuse. It's probably the worst excuse that has ever been spoken by anybody. Do you remember what Aaron said? I, they gave me this gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this, this, out came this calf. Yeah, that would be the worst excuse anybody has ever, ever spoken. You know, all I did was throw the gold in the fire, and, and this calf came out of the fire. It's like a training it's a miracle. It's a, it's a, it was a miracle. Yeah, just, you know, but the children of Israel, every time they turned around, were complaining about something. They left, they left and they're going, well, we're hungry. We want food. God gives them manna. The perfect food keeps them on their feet for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. No sicknesses, no swollen feet, no, no, no uh, problems. And what do they do? They end up griping and complaining. We don't like this manna. It's, it's, it's getting old. It's, you know, uh, we don't want manna. And I can almost understand that. I've worked in restaurants where you eat the same food every single day for a while. And if you eat the same thing you know, every day, it gets a little old. But to, be, to talk about something that God has given you. They never complained about their shoes not wearing out. Yeah, or their clothes wearing out. Yeah. But you know, that's kind of an amazing thought, yeah. isn't it? That their clothes never wore out God. in 40 years. 40 well, they were eating the perfect food. They were, yeah. Manna perfectly supplied them with every need that they had. So, but he's saying, God, are you going to draw out your anger? Are you going to just stay angry at us and keep thinking about it and getting madder at us and, and holding it through all the generations? But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. But how often do we as individuals think that that's what God's doing? He's, all this is happening to me because he's mad at me. He's trying to, trying to punish me. Oftentimes, we have the wrong attitude toward God. He's already punished Jesus. Yes, there is consequences in our life. And as I've said, when we have something bad happen in our life, we do need, the first thing we need to look at and say, have I sinned? Do I deserve the consequences of some action right now? And if we do deserve it, then we go, God, thank you for, for giving me the mercy and the grace to get through this and help me to, help me to endure what I deserve. But you know, that's not the usual reason that things happen to us. Usually, Most, yeah, it's usually because he gives you a test and he's just getting you ready for the bigger test next. Most of them are just that, the test. Well, I believe I broke my leg for a reason. Always. Everything is for a reason. Yeah, I don't know what. Even, even when we're suffering the consequences of our sin, there is a reason. It is so that we learn not to do it again. again. But most of what we go through our test to show us where we are with God. Just as we said this morning, the purpose of the test is not for God to see what, how we're going to react. He already knows how we're going to react to the test. The purpose of the test is to show us the truth of where we are with God. Because we have this uncanny ability to lie to ourselves. God, I will never not follow you. God, I will never fall into this particular sin, whatever that sin might be. God, I will never commit adultery. I'll never commit fornication. I'll never take a drink and, and end up being a drunk. And the next thing you know, if you are ever in a place where you say, I will never fall into some, some activity, you better get your guard up because that's usually the very place that Satan is going to attack you. Because if you think you're so strong that you would never fail in that area, you're not putting a guard on that part of your life. And you are very vulnerable. And I've shared this. You know, there was a time when I, if you, when I was a teenager, if somebody said there's going to be a time when you don't go to church, I would have laughed at him and said, that will never happen. And yet in my 20s, I got, so, I got a little upset with some people in the church and got, got busy with work. And next thing I know, two years have gone by and I haven't been to church. Got your feelings hurt. Well, it started with the feelings being hurt and then all kinds of different other reasons. But the guard went down. I did not put a guard on that section of my life because I never expected to, to not go to church. Satan stepped in. Satan can step in and put 
a great temptation, especially when you think it's a place that you will never fail. And you want to be very cautious. When you start thinking you're so strong in an area that you won't fail, be careful. Be very careful because that's just the area that you're not guarding. And Satan loves to make us fall in our strength because there's a double whammy when he takes us out of our strong place. Because he says, you know, see, God didn't protect you and you weren't strong enough to defend yourself and you thought you were strong in that area. And that can lead us oftentimes to some really deep fall with God because he's taking our strength and making us second-guess ourselves, and then also taking away our faith in God's power. Verse 6, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Do you realize it's God that gives us that revival and he brings that rejoicing? How many times have you been in the middle of something and you just start looking and you see how God is doing things in your life? And you're able to, all of a sudden, that brings joy. Uh, shared with you, I love the song, Count Your Blessings. <coughs> Think about what God has been doing in your life. And then I love it. Count your many blessings, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. We can sit there and we can focus on all the bad things that are going on in our life and all the things that are messed up. And we can be terrible, miserable people by concentrating on all the bad. And you know when you start concentrating on all the bad, you start really, really believing to yourself that nothing good has happened to you. And if you just flip it around and you start looking at the good things that are happening to you, and you start realizing, hey, good things are happening to me, and then all of a sudden more things start being seen as good. And then you start seeing that the, all things work together for good, and you start saying, wow, even the bad things are, are in reality good. They bring good. And there's this whole different way of thinking. And then you can share with somebody, man, my life is so blessed, so there's so much good going on. And it, I told somebody the other day, I go, I don't feel like, you know, I've had a very easy life. Nothing bad has happened to me. And they just laughed. And I go, no, it's your attitude toward it. There's plenty of you thought about it that could have been considered bad. And I go, well, then I don't want to think about it. I like, the, I like the maybe deception that bad things aren't happening to me. But, you know, when you look at God, Bad things aren't happening to you because nothing happens to you that he doesn't allow. Nothing happens to you that he's not going to work, work for good. And when you really start focusing on that aspect of your life, you can really honestly get to the place where you feel like nothing bad's happening. And the sad thing that I bring out is that as you pass tests, the next test is harder anyway, so you needed the test to get ready for the harder test. Get more bones. <laughs> get, get it, because each test is going to be significantly harder but it also won't be hard for where we're at. It's just like when you go to school, you start out with the really simple stuff, and the next year, theoretically, you study something harder, and the next year you study something harder, and you keep going up until you're, you, know, you start at math doing you know, your addition, and you end up in college doing your advanced calculus, you know, for those who get that far. <laughs> but you don't start with advanced calculus in, first, in, in kindergarten, you know. You, and also you don't do, you're not, learning addition tables when you're when you're at the place where you're learning calculus you know it's your test is harder than the previous one but by the same token you're ready for that next test so it's just it's still a test and this is one of the reasons we have to be careful not to make fun of somebody else something that somebody thinks is a test because for them it's a real test and we want to be very careful because just because their test is is simple to me does not mean it's any less of a test to them. It can be as great a test as what I'm going through. I'm just further along in, in that particular area of my life. And they may have an area where they're taking the calculus and I'm taking the, the addition tables. And they're looking at me and saying, wow, you're being blown away by that, little, that, <laughs> that easy a test? And we need to be careful not to be judgmental of people in that area. Because God is working in them. And, and if we start belittling their test, that they thought was difficult, we're going to discourage them. And it's still a test to them. My granddaughter told me today that when she was in Germany, all the people she met could tell you exactly everything that ever happened in that country, history. Mm -hmm. And she said, Grandma, I feel so guilty because I couldn't even tell them half of what I should know about my own country. Yeah. Yep. I said, well, you know what to do about it sometimes. <laughs> well, that's like me saying tests. Like, all in school, I never was good at tests. I always failed tests, really. 
but this is one test that I'm getting stronger and stronger at. That's why, like you say, you can't judge anybody by the test because it could be just as hard. And it is very true. And, and usually in school, the test that you found you couldn't pass were the courses that you really didn't care about anyway. And that's the problem with, with a lot of school. There's a lot of stuff that people don't care about. Maybe they're, maybe they're not being taught well enough to, as to why it's important. Uh, for me, I've often thought about, I love history, and I, and I don't like the dates and all of this stuff that, that schools focus on. But you know, the thing that bothers me most is how many Christians know nothing about our Christian history. They can't tell you a thing about how the church developed or why we believe what we do or, or why denom you know, certain denominations have been formed. Do you realize that it's important to know these kind of things? I love the statement, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And that's very true because if you don't know what's coming, everything runs in cycles. Every part of life runs in cycles. The very, the book of Judges was a huge, huge cycle. People did what was right in their own eyes, got judged, went into captivity and, and, and persecution, repented, got a, got a deliverer, and started going to, right, started doing what was right in their own eyes. And, you know, the whole book of Judges is just a whole series of stories where people did bad, got a deliverer, you know, repented, got a deliverer, were good for, good for a couple decades, went bad, went, got, got delivered. But you know what? That's also the story of the whole Bible. Really? It's also the story of the church going through. The church does us the same thing. We go through, we start doing things in our own, what's good in our own eyes, and then we get to a place where we need repentance and drop back to the Bible. And our, very, and our own very lives do that same thing. We go through these little cycles of maybe long, shorter or longer, but we, we do things, we start doing things the way we think they should be done. God says, no, you're not going to do that. He knocks us down a couple pegs, we repent, and we come back. <laughs> and sometimes it is that serious. Verse 7 says, show us your mercy, O God, and grant us your salvation. Mercy. God, don't give us what we deserve. Show us mercy. I've heard people, sometimes even Christians, saying, all I want is what I deserve. What a dangerous thing to say. Because what we deserve is hell. What we deserve is a miserable time on this earth. Not just hell in the future, but a miserable time on this earth. What does God want to give us and desire to give us? Peace, joy, thankfulness. On this world, not just in the heaven. And heaven's just going to intensify what he's given us on this world. And I've shared this a couple of times. There was an old song that, that talked about, you know, if this world is all there is, have we, do we have regrets? And you know, as a Christian, if for some reason, if God is not who he says he is, and there is no heaven, which I know because of the black that I walk with him and all the things he's done for me on this earth, that it's, there is. But you know, even if there wasn't, the joy and the peace that I have had on this world is worth it. Especially when I look around at the lost people and all that, then they can't enjoy even getting what they think they want. But that also is the proof that I know there's a heaven. Because God has given us what he said he would do here. He's given us a peace that understand, a peace that beyond understanding. He gives us joy. He gives us calmness. He comes into our life and fills us and befriends us. All of that proves that there is a heaven to go to, but at the same time, it also makes it that this is the greatest experience that we're going to have, even on this world, is great. And our eternal life starts here. The moment we accept Jesus Christ, eternal life is given to us. We're not waiting to get to heaven to start our eternal life. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our body ceases to function, our spirit just says, okay, fine, we're out of this realm, we'll go right into God. And we continue the life that he gave us in this world, except now, instead of being by faith, we get to see him. Actually see him that we've always wanted to see. We step out of this world into a different world, 
Eternal life starts the moment we accept him. He's revived us. He's, he's given us. He's shown us mercy. Verse 8, and I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But, the, but let them not turn again to folly. God speaks peace to us. And we've talked about peace. Peace is the word shalom. And this is how the Jews greet each other in Hebrew. But this word for peace is so much more than just peace. It's soundness, it's completeness, it's tranquility. It is a very powerful word. And just think about this, when we're in Christ, we're in walking with God, isn't that a tranquil place to be when we're following him and we're not trying to fight him? Sometimes we're sitting there trying to fight him, saying, no, I don't want to go that way, and it's not very tranquil. But when we are just sitting with him, there's that peace, that tranquility, that rest, the absolute completeness that everything is right. And hopefully you've been there at various times in your life. You know, it'd be nice if we could stay there all the time. But we tend to want to fight and argue with God and not do what he wants us to do. And we should be able to look at it and say, man, it's so, when I agree with God, it's, life is so much easier. And the more we walk with God, the closer we walk with God, the more we stay in that tranquil, that tranquil place because we learn our lessons a little bit. When we first start with God, and if, maybe you remember when you first started walking with him, you argued with him about everything. It took you years sometimes to learn, to learn the lessons that he was trying to teach you. But as you get more trusting on him and more acknowledging of him, a lot of times that learning curve shortens because we kind of know we've been beat up enough, we've been, we've been forced to listen to him often enough that we start saying, okay, God, I give up a lot quicker. Unfortunately, we still oftentimes will sit there and argue with him and, and try to do things our way. But hopefully it doesn't take us as long to, to make that decision. We go, okay, God, I, you know, you've been right before. <laughs> you're probably right this time. You know, maybe we get to the place where, God, I know you're right. Just help me to <laughs> change my mind quick. But you know, the hardest thing about it is our flesh does not want to give in. You know, I, one of the things I hear so often, especially out of the prison, the guy's going, well, what part do I have? I, you know, I got to have a part on this. Well, your part is to give up. Give up and let God do it. The flesh does not like to give up. The flesh likes to have, you know, this is, you know, I did this. I, I did this. I, I helped in this. And oftentimes when we're a young Christian, we'll go, well, I surrendered. Look what, look what I accomplished by surrendering. Well, okay, if you want to look at it that way, that's fine. But you just let God do it, and he made the change. And the more we change, the quicker we change, the better off we're going to be. Paul said, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. How often do we go through hardships and all we want to do is complain about it? And God is saying, give thanks. Why give thanks? He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to show us who we are. And you know what? When you're thankful to him, you're going to walk in victory more often than not. And it's so important. Verse 9 says, Surely his salvation is near them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Those that fear him. Our country is getting further and further from the fear of God. And what are we seeing in our country? More and more bad things happening. More and more bad laws being implemented. More and more evil being accepted as correct. And we're seeing it over and over again. In the 60s, abortion hit, hit, our, hit our country and we started murdering millions of innocent babies. Then we started seeing euthanasia coming along and I say, okay, they're getting, the people are getting older. We haven't killed enough babies. Let's now kill the older people that are too old to be productive. Now we're seeing marriage. You know, we saw the merit breakdown of marriage in general. Just, you know, go sleep with anybody that you want. Commit as much fornication as you want. Now we're seeing homosexuality being accepted. And for everybody in this room, probably, there was never a day where we thought that, that homosexuality would be accepted. Now we're seeing all kinds of 
of really bizarre things being per, being spoken. I read an article the other day where this guy is making trying to sue the government so they could marry their dog. Okay, because if, it could, if homosexuality is okay, what's wrong with this? Pedophilia is being talked about very openly. Polygamy is being talked about very openly. The door was opened for sexual sins back in the 60s and 70s with this free love activity, and now it's becoming almost anything goes, and it's going to be anything goes very soon because that is the destruction of civilization. All through history, sexual sins have led that way. It will. It's a guarantee that it will. Unless we have a revival from God, we are going there. That, that attitude destroyed Rome. That attitude destroyed Greece. That attitude destroyed Babylon. Every major civilization has fallen as it's gotten into the heavy sexual sins that are out there. Israel was sent to the Promised Land and told to kill all the inhabitants of the Promised Land. What was they doing? All the sexual sins, were, they were so perverse that nothing was considered wrong in any sexual activity in, in, in that land. And God judged them for it. This is what happens when we get away from God and we don't listen to him. The land gets destroyed. When we listen to him and, and the righteous rule, things are good in the land. There's blessing. And when they're unrighteous rule... We see all the problems that come along with that. And God is telling us, follow him. We as Christians need to lift up our voice and pray for our country. We need to pray for our world. We need to pray for a revival. All the big revivals in this world have started through prayer. Jonathan Edwards led a prayer group that prayed in the second great revival. The first great revival in America was through prayer. If there's any hope for this country, it's going to start with prayer and pray for revival. Pray and confess the sins of this, this world. Pray for people to turn to God because the great revivals come by people turning to God and changing in, back to a moral people. All through the book of Judges, we see that. People prayed and God delivered. We see it through the great revivals. Is there hope for this world? Yes, there is a small hope for this. It would be through a revival. Do I expect a revival? I'm not so sure because I think we might have gone pretty close to the tipping age, but it can happen. I pray for a revival. I, I would love to see a revival. That would push God's return out another 100, 200, 300 years. And I could have some grandkids that have a world that is worth growing up in. But if we don't turn and repent and have a revival, I almost don't want to see grandkids and great-grandkids because the world is so miserable. And that is what they have to look forward to. But revival, we need to pray for it. And it is out there if we just turn to him. Verse 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I love this. I love this verse, this statement. Mercy and truth are met together is in the Bible ten times. Mercy and truth have met together. Mine says faithfulness. Huh? Love and faithfulness, faithfulness met together in righteousness. Mm. And a peace kiss each other. Mercy, God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Not giving us what we deserve. God is merciful and wants his people to be his and to have fellowship with him. But sin must be paid for. What is the truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus has come. He has paid the debt. He has met the anger of God and satisfied it. The truth is that sin is paid for. Do we realize the value of that truth? Mercy and truth meet together. God's great desire to give us blessing with the truth that Jesus has paid for sin have met together. And the result is we become his children. 
we can be forgiven. We can have fellowship with the God of the universe in an intimate relationship that he has wanted ever since Adam and Eve fell. Think about this. In the garden, God met each day with Adam and Eve and spoke with them. And they sinned and that fellowship was broken. And it took the death of Jesus to bring that fellowship back. And now we have the ability to just sit with God and meet with him. Do you realize how precious that gift is? If you're in any other religion, any other denomination, they do not have a God that they are in love with. They have a God that they hope they do enough good things that that God will accept them and allow them into their whatever their version of eternity and paradise is. Because they don't know, they don't have this concept of love. And we know that God loves us so much that he reached out his hand and said, I'm paying the price because you can't do it. And we say, God, I can't do it. I accept your gift. And then we're saved. Very simple exchange that it takes. And then it says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where does righteousness come from? There's only one true righteousness, and that is the righteousness of Christ. And because of his righteousness, we have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. So the righteousness of Christ meets the peace of God, and they come together. And we have a very precious place where everything has come. We are made complete. We are made a living being again. Most of, you know, this whole idea of zombies and everything that are being so popular, you know, before Christ, we really are zombies. We're walking dead people with no spirit, no joy, no life. Christ comes into us and he revives our spirit and gives us life. And this has been said, and I've said it myself, the saddest thing about this world and those that are headed to hell is this world that they walk in is as close to heaven as they're ever going to see. And when we think about how miserable this world is, especially without Christ, to think that this is as close to heaven, as, as much heaven as they're going to see, should motivate us to witness to try to bring people to Christ. And this is the most miserable life we're going to see. And the good news for us is when we're Christians, it's a pretty good life. Because we're living and he gives us every, all these blessings. And this is as close to hell as we're ever going to see as Christians. And it's so valuable for us because God has promised greater things than what we're seeing here. Heaven is something that I can't even fathom what heaven's going to be like. Yeah. Because as, as much as I don't feel at home here because of all the bad, I have not had bad experiences in this world. It's been a pretty good place when you're thankful with God and you're watching him move. It says, truth shall spring up out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. These are opposite pictures of Jesus. Jesus came to this earth, became incarnate, a human being, springing up out of the world, earth. And he's also the righteousness that looks down upon this world. He is the one that makes us righteousness from the earth and he is the righteous looking, looking down on us. The picture of him. Yes, Lord. Yes, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. It's amazing when we look at the land of Israel. The Israelites bought it in the, in, the, in, the, in the 40s and 50s. They bought all this worthless swamp land. Then the, and the Arab people were very happy to, to, to sell them their swamp land. They didn't want it anyway. And what is now, what was swamp land back then is now the breadbasket for the, all of Europe. They produce so much food in Israel that little tiny country feeds 
Europe and produces flowers and everything else. You know, a land the size of New Jersey is very fertile. God has given them great blessings because it's his land and his people are in his land and he has made it abundant. And they grow food and they have a beautiful garden land in the middle of what used to be desert and swamp. God has blessed and said, it is yours. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us up in the way of his steps. Have you realized that over your lifetime as you follow God, the more you follow him, the more blessing there is? And it is amazing. I love it, especially when Sharon talks about these people coming into her store and buying just, just what she needs to, you know, for that particular day or that week. God giving us great blessings. Before I started working in the prison, watching God, you know, there was time when Linda, Linda and I would just say, okay, God, here's bills. <laughs> okay, you've only given us so much money, here's the rest of the bills that you have to pay by the, you know, in the next uh, 10 days. And you know what? God always made the bills get paid. I'd get an extra little job here or there, you know, doing some computer work, or a gift would come in, or the offering would be extremely high that month, and there'd be extra money at the end of the month, you know. But God always provided the blessings. This is amazing because, like I said last month when I had that big army, it was like 7000 now. I would say, God, I want my shop to pay for my water bill. Well, it was a high water bill, and he provided. I yeah. had way enough. And it is amazing what God does for us. We honor him with our, with our gifts back because it's all his. And isn't it amazing, for those of you that are learning to tithe, isn't it amazing when you tithe and you, your 90% you money goes a lot further than the 100% of your money did before? And the more I tithe, the more I get back. You can't outgive God. It is so wonderful when we start realizing it's all his anyway. And it's the only thing that we're told to test God in. He says, test me and see if I don't open the windows of heaven. And he, and he does. He returns back. And this isn't going into the crazy guys on TV that say, give us his seed money, give us your $100, and God will give you $10,000. No, that is not true way of looking at it. But God will meet whatever needs that you have. And usually he goes above the needs. He is a good father. He wants us to be blessed. He wants us to have not just our needs. That's his promise. His promise is to meet our needs. That's usually what I ask mostly is my needs because I, I don't want to be greedy, so I ask for my needs. But he is a good father who wants to give us more. blessing. He wants to give us more. The key to that is, are we looking to use that more exclusively on ourselves or are we going to use that more to also help build the kingdom? And the more we try to use it on ourselves, the less more he's going to give us. And that doesn't mean we can't use any of it on ourselves. I mean, he does understand that we're going to use some of it to, to go out to dinner, to go out on a vacation, whatever it might be. But, the, but do we turn around and say, God, you've blessed me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the church back. And we're not saying all this because we need money in the church because God has done great blessings in this church. But not just your church because it's all over the world now. So we're everywhere. We're, That's why I think about it. We're everywhere in the world, but you realize, and you may not have noticed it, but every month this year, this church has brought in over $3,000 in the month. And for those of you who've been around <laughs> yeah, three, three and a half years ago, we couldn't even bring $600 in the month into the church. And, there's time, and most of the time now, we get $600 in a week. And we've had some really good weeks where we get some really good blessings. God is doing great things in this church. And it's through you all. And I know that because of that, God is blessing the people in return. And, you know, just so you all know, I have told John, I don't want to know what anybody gives in the church. I don't want to know as the pastor. All I want to know is that God is blessing. And I just look at those nice big numbers at the end of the month and saying, God, you're doing amazing things. Well, I say it's not us anyway. It's God's money in the first place. Well, yeah, yeah but it's uh, yeah, our people that are giving it. Yeah, yeah. And we look at what we're doing. As you say, we're on the Internet. Last month, 1,800 clicks into the messages. And people going to the site 
listening. What is God doing with those messages out there? We don't know. Nobody's sending us an email telling us what's going on. But you can't have that many clicks into God's word being heard without something being done. We've got all the money that we give to the, to the uh, cooperative program, the money we give to the River Valley Association, who's then pumping it into the new churches that are starting all over the place. We're, we're giving money to the new work ministry directly that gives money straight to the new churches. And God is looking at it and saying, yes, we're going to bless and we're seeing people's lives, we're seeing the people in this room's lives being changed and becoming more and more like God and getting more and more excited about his word and studying his word and having their lives changed. What impact does that have on the, on the world? What impact are we seeing? Look at Teresa, got a new job, a very good job. Good job for Teresa. It's all these things that are so special out there and God is giving blessings. And I love watching it. I love being just a small part of that blessing and I'm watching and looking for what is God going to do in the future as he prepares us for whatever's coming our way. And that may be trials and tribulations that are coming our way, but because we're getting into his word, trials and tribulations are going to be something that is to be expected anyway. This is the one class that I can be on an honor roll. Never ever been on an honor roll. Never ever ever. Maybe on the underdog. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us so that we could be in a relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you for that love. We thank you for that care. We thank you that you are a loving father that wants to bless us. You're not up there looking for any reason to punish and destroy us. You're looking for reasons to bless and give us great blessing. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.